2017. And now, here's your host, Kevin Conover. Bring your time. Welcome to Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. My website's educateforlife.org. And my website, if you want to check it out, you can get all kinds of courses on apologetics, things uh, proving the truth of the Bible. So we, we cover issues like how do we know the Bible is actually God's word? We cover creation and evolution. We cover why is there suffering, evil, and uh, hell? All, all the different subjects that people have questions about. We live in a very skeptical culture right now. And so it's very helpful to be able to raise your kids or to get information yourself so that you're prepared to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within you uh, to maybe coworkers or teammates or peers, whatever it might be, all available online there for you. Um, we're also, this program is going to be airing on Sunday on KPraise FM 106.1 here in Southern California and uh, AM 1210 uh, here in San Diego. We're also on YouTube. We're on Facebook, we're on Periscope, all the different social media outlets, so you can check them out there. My guest today is Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, and he has a PhD in cell and developmental biology from Harvard University. He serves as a research biologist, author, and speaker with Answers in Genesis, and formerly conducted research with the Institute for Creation Research. He came out with a book back in, I believe it was 2017, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species, Dr. Jensen, thanks for being on the program today. Thanks so much for having me on, Kevin. Absolutely. So, um, very exciting, this book. You've been uh, back and forth. You've had criticism of the book. Um, but uh, explain to our listeners the title, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. The title has a, has a couple things going for it. One is, I didn't use a past tense because science is a process where you're continually discovering new things. And so, I wrote the book wanting to set the research agenda for the next 50 years and replacing Darwin because we've reached a stage in the creation evolution debate that I think is a, a real fulcrum, a real turning point. So you look at the, the past 50 years, back to the Henry Morris, Dwayne Gish days, and there was a lot of, I'd call it defense, saying, no, evolutionists say this, what they're saying is not quite valid. They're, they're pushing it too far, and you, you can still understand what the Bible says with good science. But it's still largely defensive. They're making these attacks against Scripture. How do we defend the Bible against it? Whereas now I think I feel like the tide is changing. There's so much data that's accumulated. Creationists are taking the lead on research that it's not just rebutting Darwin, but replacing his ideas with a superior explanation for the origin of species. Creationists are coming up with discoveries evolutionists didn't see coming and finding out new things about the world that we also didn't see coming. So that's the replacing part rather than just rebutting it. And it's a really exciting time to be in the middle of this. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I've heard, um, you know, I've talked to different people about this particular issue, scientists and, and researchers and so forth, who have said, uh, you know, it's been an uphill battle dealing with evolution. You, you know, 90% uh, of kids go to public schools where by default they were being taught evolution but you see this tide turning. Um, what are some of the things going on that you see that, that um, where uh, it, it's less of a defensive position and it's more offensive? What, what else are you seeing specifically? Specifically, and what the book focuses on almost exclusively was the main question Darwin tried to answer and solve, the origin of species. And if you look at the evidence that he proposed, which is really unchanged, evolutionists haven't come up with much new in 150 years mm -hmm. other than new examples of the old arguments, those arguments have been pushed forward almost in isolation. Darwin tried to disprove the creationist ideas of 1859. Modern evolutionists are basically still living in this bubble, acting like their opponents haven't updated their ideas in a century and a half, when of course that's not true. And so the advances in creation science, having a better understanding of what design predicts, if God designed the world, how should it look? We have a much better understanding of that now than creationists did in 1859. And perhaps more importantly, the 1859 position for creationists was really based on just simple observations of the world, not, not starting with Scripture and saying, what does the Bible actually say about the origin of species, and then going forward into the natural world? It was just the world looks designed, therefore species are designed, created in their current location. Those were some of the old, outdated ideas that if you just read Genesis 1 through 11 fairly quickly, you'll say that can't possibly be true because the world was flooded about 4,500 years ago, so God couldn't have put today's species in their current locations because those obviously changed. Those, those came from some animals on board the ark that landed somewhere in the Middle East and then migrated to their present location. So 
Anyway, so these are some of the updates that have happened within creation science that render the old arguments effectively useless. And perhaps even more important than all of that is the birth of the field of modern genetics, the only field of science that directly records whose species come from. Darwin had no access to this. We now have reams and reams of data to analyze, and we've, we've dis- made all sorts of discoveries that fit exactly what the Bible says, species having just a few set of ancestors living a few thousand years ago, and through, through God's design, effectively, putting, putting genetic capacity in these creatures from the start, they can diversify over time within limits. It, it, it's this advance and, and birth of a, of a whole field that, that Darwin knew nothing about that's really got the ball rolling at, at a fast pace in the creationist direction. That's great. Now, um, does this at all, is there a correlation here with the intelligent design movement with uh, like Stephen Meyer and so forth? Do you believe there's, there's inter, uh, interaction here between, uh, you know, creation science and intelligent design? I'd say there's significant scientific overlap, and then there's, there's some fairly big philosophical differences. In terms of scientific overlap, Michael Behe's work comes to mind immediately, his work on irreducible complexity. He's approaching it perhaps more from a biochemical perspective, but to me, he has one of the most airtight arguments against evolution. It's one of the strongest anti-evolutionary arguments out there. Now, he accepts billions of years of Earth history. He's okay with humans and chimpanzees having a common ancestor. But in terms of defeating Darwin and, and rebutting him, very strong case. I haven't seen as much from their camp in terms of replacing him, and I think that's part of the where, where the philosophical differences come in. Mm-hmm. For political reasons, they say we, we're, we're trying to do a big tent approach. We're not going to identify the designers, so they have everything from agnostics to young earth creationists as, as part of their tent as a strategy. Uh, but I think it also limits what they can do to replace Darwin, because, well, what's, what's your basis for the better idea? What, what are you going to agree on as the starting point? Aside from some undefined intelligent force it just it's hard to get much beyond that i think so they've done some fairly rigorous work mathematically biochemically uh and and i learned a lot from reading michael Behe's books uh which has allowed me then to i think and me and my colleagues young earth creationist colleagues to take leaps forward and say we've got a starting point we've got the bible this gives us a general framework in which to ask and answer research questions and we've seen remarkable success even with even within the last 10 years that's great now, um, your background, you have a, a PhD in cell and developmental biology from Harvard University. That's pretty significant. Um, can you give us a little bit about, you know, your, the path you've traveled as far as, uh, did you start out wanting to, to get into developmental biology and these sorts of things? Um, did you grow up in a Christian family? Where, where, where are your origins uh, as it pertains to this issue? I owe a lot to my upbringing. I was homeschooled through eighth grade. I went to a small Christian high school that my parents picked because it took a stand on Genesis, and they said, we're, we're, we are explicitly Young Earth Creationist School. I went to Worldview Weekend Conferences. I remember hearing Ken Ham, I think I was in eighth grade, still had some of my notes from that. So I grew up with a background of my parents saying, you're going to learn creation science, you're going to learn what the other side says, you're going to learn how to answer it. A strong enough background so that when I went off to secular college, a state school in Wisconsin, uh, commuting, I was prepared for what I was going to hear in class. There really was no surprises of, oh, wow, they say this. I, I wonder what the answer is. It, it was stuff I'd heard before, I had the answer to, and there was no being blindsided. So that, I think, played a huge role. I, I would bring up creation in class when I could, and I felt it was appropriate. I knew they weren't paying the school to hear me talk, so you've got to pick and choose your time. But there was nothing that, that, that bowled me over, really, thanks to that upbringing. When I went off to graduate school, my interest was really more cancer than creation science, though in the back of my head I thought, well, if I ever do go into creation science, having a Harvard degree might be helpful. Uh, and it, it, it was a variety of circumstances, perhaps even being born again in, in graduate school, even though I had a Christian upbringing. I don't, I don't know that I felt that the gospel was good news really until most of my way through graduate school. And then my interest changed. So uh, right after I graduated, I joined the Institute for Creation Research to to try to use my training, basically, for maybe a more immediate ministry purpose. Uh, I guess if you're a scientist, everything becomes an experiment, and that's been my career experiment for the past decade. Yeah. Well, that's that's fantastic. So um, I've always thought to myself, you know, I, uh, it's a really powerful pers- per- perspective to come from a PhD in something that deals directly with 
you know, what evolution would claim at biology is its uh, claim to fame, you know, um, they're arguing that evolution works from a biological perspective. Um, and yet you found exactly the opposite. What are, when we, when you were going to school at Harvard, were there, or, or at that state school in Wisconsin, were there things that popped up that caused you to, um, question your belief in creation? Um, we are coming up on the, on a segment break here, but, um, when we get back, my guest is Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, and he is an expert in cell biology. He says evolution uh, does not work. And so stay with us. We're going to talk about his experience going to Harvard and then uh, why he landed where he is today. Uh, he is the author of the book, Replacing Darwin. You can check that out, out at answersingenesis.org. Uh, they've all got all kinds of resources that you can uh, get there to help you in understanding this issue and being able to answer your own questions and also answer the questions of the people around you. So stay with us. We're going to be right back. Save money by taking good care of your car. Call Conover Tires Wheels and Service in Oceanside. Locally owned and operated since 1991 with all the brands you trust. See their great customer reviews and special offers at ConoverTires.com. Dan and his team are proud to support Educate for Life with Kevin Conover. They even sell affordable, reliable used cars and enclosed trailers. Conover Tires, 2405 Oceanside Boulevard, 760-439-1631. us today this is educate for life i'm your host kevin conover it's a friday uh, here in san diego my guest is actually in kentucky he works for answers in genesis dr nathaniel jensen and uh if you don't know a lot about answers in genesis an incredible ministry started by ken ham i've actually had ken on the radio uh here before and they have the ark exhibit it's a gigantic uh full-size uh ark it's it's to the biblical proportions um awesome opportunity to see really uh, was the ark a feasible uh, thing that the Bible describes? Is that real history or is that just a story? And um, so, uh, Dr. Jensen, I was talking with you briefly off air. Um, you work for Answers in Genesis, and you're do you primarily do research for them? Yeah, I'm in the research department. I travel fairly rarely, five trips a year per less. I tend to do it internationally just because there's been an explosion of activity in Latin America in particular. I, I take trips to Europe on occasion, uh, hoping to make it to Germany. My mother's German, so I'm half German, speak fluent German, hope I, ho- hoping to deliver lectures in German. But most of my time here is, is doing research and then writing it up either in uh, technical form or in book form like I did for Replacing Darwin. Well, one of the complaints that I hear sometimes from or I read about from atheists or those who um, are advocates of evolution is that uh, creation science isn't real science. It doesn't make predictions. Um, how you? How would you respond to somebody who said uh, creation science doesn't actually make predictions and it's not real science? And this is this is an incredible point because not only is it uh, come up a lot in popular discussions, it's written in federal law. The famous 1982 Arkansas court decision where they where they overturned a. Arkansas law mandating the teaching of creation science. That was one of the points the judge made. He said, you, you can't teach creation science. It's not science because it doesn't make predictions. And that mantra has been, so I was born in 1980. It's, it's been repeated my whole life. Yeah. And that's what I, that's the milieu I grew up in knowing this is what they're demanding. So I grew up listening to Gish, Dwayne Gish debate and, uh, you know, here's the problems of evolution and hearing the evolutionists invoke that point basically as their favorite last resort. So you, you can watch debates, you can, you can even in your own experience engaging people online or on the street, that the, the conversation tends to follow a fairly predictable path and it tends to land on that exact point. Well, I can't come up with an answer. The evolutionist might say, you know, they may not come up with any defense of the problems of evolution or they might, well, it's, it's just an area of research. Or You can come up with all sorts of ways to say, look, evolution doesn't work. And at the end of the day, they'll resort to, well, who cares? Until you can give me something better, you've got no place at the scientific table. And that's basically where the, 
where the national legal discussion is at and where the popular discussion is as well. That's what students will hear in the university. It's written in textbooks over and over again. So it's a, it's a huge point that most people aren't aware of because they don't pull out that card until they get backed into a corner, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how would you respond to that? How would you respond to that? Because I've, I've actually, uh, I was actually handcuffed to a, an evolutionist uh, by BuzzFeed for 24 hours. And that's one of the things he brought up was he said, uh, creation science doesn't make predictions. It just tries to poke holes in evolution. And he said, and you know what? He said, um, we're fine with not knowing the answers. That's what science is all about. It's about uh, you can be wrong. And he said, at least we make predictions and then we can validate those predictions through uh, testing and so forth. And he said, what, what predictions does creation science make? So I would answer in a number of ways. First of all, I'd say replacing Darwin is the answer to that objection because it has put in print testable predictions, claims about the natural world for which we don't yet know the answer, claims about the rate at which DNA mutates, the rate at which species form. There are all sorts of predictions, literal predictions, and and what they're demanding, what the evolutionists have been asking for for 40 years is give us a claim that future observations could reveal to be true or false. And so one of the main claims I put in the book is, look, here's, here's for humans, for example, in African people groups, because no one has yet measured a particular type of DNA, the rate at which DNA mutates in, in certain African groups. I said, look, here's some numbers. They're going to they're gonna change their DNA at this many changes per generation. I, I put a number in the book. That's something we can go and test. And what's been really interesting to observe is looking at some of the evolutionary critics. There's been a few who've tried to publish rebuttals to the book. Uh, and th- th- when they deal with that chapter, and there's one in particular, an, an anonymous evolutionary blogger who's saying, well, this, this is a problem, and uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. His main, his main response to me putting a prediction in print and then basically saying to evolutionists, now meet your own standard, you put a prediction in print. Uh, his basic response was, Jensen doesn't get to pick which predictions we should put in print. I thought, well, I think I'm on the right track. <laughs> I have an answer to this one. That's, that's one answer. The second answer is, and this blows me away, these predictions are already coming true. So one of the predictions we can make, if you say, look, uh, God created kinds of creatures. They're not species. They're not even the level of genus, but probably more the level of family. For example, everything from tigers to house cats are in the cat family. They yeah. descend from a pair on board the Ark of Noah, according to Scripture, and uh, combine that with science. So there's over 30 species of cats alive today. That, that makes a prediction, then, that cats have been forming at a certain number of species per year, or it takes this many years to form a new species on average. That's the type of prediction you can make. And that, that whole model actually predicts species to continually form. This is something the evolutionists don't even see coming because they think it takes millions of years for these species to come about. Well, lo and behold, about four months after my book came out, one of the most famous Exhibit A examples for evolution, Darwin's finches, those finches in the Galapagos that Peter and Rosemary Grant had been studying for 40 years, they announced in Science Magazine, January of uh, 2018, that they, that they observed the formation of a new species of Darwin's finch. Well, you run the numbers, and, and they were shocked by this, of course, because you know, it's supposed to take millions of years. They're shocked by this. You run the numbers, and the rate at which these species are forming, so if you, if you take that observation, extrapolate it to the whole globe, uh, what that translates to is that an average rate of three to four new species, new bird species per year. If you run the numbers for young earth creation, so there's around 11,000 total bird species on the planet today. There's about 4,500 years since the flood. So you say the bird species today come from the handful of bird kinds on board the ark 11,000 divided by 4,500, it gives you about um, two to three new species per year. So it's right in line with what Young Earth Creationist has predicted. So I'd say, first of all, in answer that, that that big 40-year-old question, you don't, you don't make testable predictions false, factually false. They're in print, they're in my book. And beyond that, and this, this again blows me away, they're already coming true. There's, a, there's work I'm doing right now in, in human genetics. I, I said in the book, we should be able to see the, the history of civilization written into our DNA, the transatlantic slave trade, Genghis Khan's empire, the Roman empire, the Greek empire, there should be signatures in our DNA of this. We're seeing that now come true, and hopefully some research that will be published this year shows that to be true. So not only is it factually an error, but the tables have been completely reversed. We're making predictions that are coming true, and I'm not seeing the evolutionists counter that with their own predictions, let alone ones that are coming true. Mm. 
that's that's fantastic. Now, is uh, is this getting out into the general public, or is this kind of on the cutting edge of science? Um, when you say like the the tide is turning, are are do you feel that this is actually um, creation uh, slash intelligent design? These sorts of things are making headway in say the schools and the universities and these sorts of places, or is is this more on um, the academic uh, research level? In my mind, it's turning the tide because it's meeting the the harshest standards evolutionists have applied to creationists, and it, it's flipping that that whole table around. So, in my mind, the academic discussion, the technical discussion, mm-hmm. or maybe I should even say the the logical discussion, has now been completely reversed. Whether the rest of the culture follows, whether the mainstream academic community follows logic and rationality, is a whole other question. And, Maybe put it this way, I often get asked by mainstream reporters, you know, why do you disagree with 97% of the scientific community? Or in other words, how can all these smart people be wrong? And they either want me to say there's a conspiracy or they want me to say you know, we've got to throw out science, neither of which are true. Yeah. I say, no, there's, there's a third explanation, namely our national educational system has, for whatever reason, ruled out the teaching of creation science the vast majority, probably 99% of the scientists who do work in the U.S. today, have gone through their entire career from kindergarten through graduate school, never being required to read the other side, because the law says, apparently, you're not supposed to do that. So here they've gone through being taught evolution, that it's the superior explanation, being told that creation doesn't make testable predictions, which is false, they don't even know what the other side says. So how can you disprove creation science if you don't even know what they're saying? It's, it's, a, it's a profound ignorance that exists in our culture. And to me, the way to turn the tide would be through education. But we have these, these major stumbling blocks culturally, uh, legally, that prevent people from being exposed to the other side. One perhaps ironic readout of progress in creation science is it, it comparing textbooks from the 50s to today. So you, you look in the 1950s, evolutionary textbooks, they don't really discuss creation science at all. It's, it's maybe a letter from a professor to a student saying, look, I know you come from a Bible background, but the Bible and science are different areas. You don't have to worry about it. Today, you've got whole chapters in evolutionary textbooks saying, here's how you deal with creation science. Maybe a weird way to measure progress, but they know creation scientists have to be dealt with. Hmm. I don't think they try to educate themselves in what we actually believe. And the fact that we're making these great predictions, and, and even in fields that have tremendous human interest, well, who, who doesn't want to know their past? What does it mean to be a European, an African-American, an Asian-American, an Asian person? Genetics is rewriting all of this, and the only way you see this is with young Earth creation science. So I'm, I'm seeing huge potential impact for this, but I also know that the mainstream community has instituted a system that basically prevents anyone from being exposed to this in the normal course of their education. So that's still a big stumbling block, but to me, the pieces are in place to break through that wall and and make a big difference. That's great. Yeah. And if a lot of people decide to get involved and make a difference, my guest today is Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. He's with Answers in Genesis. He has a PhD in cell and developmental biology from Harvard University. Stay with us. We're going to continue to discuss his book, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. We'll be right back. How can you live in San Diego and miss out on enjoying the water? Fast Lane Kayaking sells popular Hobie Cat kayaks that you pedal, not paddle. That means your hands are left free for fishing and fun. Just throw these on your roof rack. They're light and they're easy to use and maintain. Just rinse them off. Try one free on a demo ride. For 36 years, Ron and Debbie Lane have served San Diego with fun, family-friendly water sports of all kinds. Learn more. FastLaneSailing.com. Six one nine two 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 zero seven sixty six. Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. My website's educateforlife.org. It's a great 
resource. If you're looking for a curriculum or something to go through with your students, if you homeschool your kids, or if you want to use it in a, in a youth group or a Bible study, it's all kinds of videos, 40 HD videos, all on the different subjects that uh, people have questions about. We deal with issues like, what about the issue of homosexuality? Are people born this way? What about creation and evolution, genetics? How do dinosaurs fit in the Bible? How do we know all the books of the Bible are the ones that God wanted in the Bible? All these sorts of issues that come up on a regular basis. It's a great resource for you. Check it out. We also have over 100 different radio programs now with scientists from all over the world and other people testifying to how Christ has impacted their life and how God is continuing to use people to rescue others. We recently interviewed Cindy Mendoza, who's got three schools in Africa now. Who She's, teach, she's rescuing kids out of uh, sex trafficking and then helping them to um, learn and be educated uh, in Uganda. I just recently interviewed Brooks Gibbs, who's traveling the country, um, talking to people about raising resilient children and uh, from a biblical perspective. It's fa absolutely fantastic. And uh, today we have on our show Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, who's an expert um, on the issue of creation and evolution. He has a PhD in cell and developmental biology from Harvard University. He works with Answers in Genesis. That's AnswersInGenesis.org. If you don't know who they are, they're a fantastic ministry based out of Kentucky. They have a, a life-size arc um, from the dimensions in the Bible, and it's an entire huge walkthrough that you can check out goes through all the, the evidence for creation and uh, the history that's recorded in the Bible um, about what has happened in the relationship between God and man. And uh, Dr. Jensen, when you were going through school, through uh, the school in Wisconsin and through uh, Harvard, um, did you ever come upon things that you, you uh, hit as you were learning that you were like, wow, um, you know, this makes me think maybe evolution is true or were you constantly thinking to yourself, wow, this just validates what I, I've known to be true, which is that creation is true. I guess three answers come to mind. One is I, I picked a degree in biology or a slice of biology that doesn't deal as much with origins. Evolutionists are fond of saying nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. Well, quite frankly, it's relevant only to origin science, dealing with where we came from, answering questions like how, did, how does cancer arise and how do you cure it? What, what genes control the human developmental process or a mouse developmental process. Most questions that the NIH funds have nothing to do with evolution. And so it didn't come up much, hardly at all, in my education. Maybe biology 101, 102, where they, they give you an introduction to, to cell biology, introduction to organismal biology. But then I jumped into my field fairly quickly, and we're dealing with present tense questions. How do skin cells resist UV light rays from the sun, or how does, how does a, a, a skin cell correct DNA damage? Just basic, fundamental questions about how life works, and to, to throw an evolutionist to ask a completely different question. How did life arise? How did we get to this state? That you're, you're asking and answering different questions using different tools. So it didn't come up that much. Uh, the second thing is my, my upbringing, I think, prepared me very, very well for it. I was reading creation science materials, and, and actually... People ask me, how did you survive Harvard? One of the things I bring up is, is comes from an article I read a few years ago, sort of a, a retrospective looking back, like what worked. Well, this article I read from World Magazine said, uh, advice to incoming freshmen, expect to read double. You're going to hear that whatever discipline you're going into, you're going to hear in class the, the mainstream view. So if you're studying arts, you're studying science, whatever it is, mainstream view in class. If you want to know the Christian worldview on whatever you're studying, you're going to have to read just as much outside of class as inside class. And I sent that to my sister, who's 16 years younger than me, because she was just starting school. And my mother said, well, well, you did that. And this wasn't a, look what a good job I did. It was, oh, this worked. I was reading creation science materials, intelligent design materials in high school, uh, outside of class, when I was an undergraduate. I was prepared for this, and, and very little came up that, that bothered me. Now, the last 10 years doing creation science, there's stuff that comes up where, hmm, I don't have the answer for this. But because I know the Bible is true, it's been confirmed over and over again, I've seen so many questions go away with digging into it, it really doesn't bother me much at all, uh, and it's really more just a, right now, for me, during research, it's, it's, a, it's a prompting to dig into the issue deeper, and whenever I do discover the answer, because this is 
been a process that repeats itself multiple times over, it makes the answer all the more exciting because you, you go into it thinking, hmm, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is here. They, they seem to make a decent argument. I don't know what the opposite data are. And I dig into it and, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is completely backwards. And, and here's the real answer. And it's even better than we thought. And it's that sort of process that, that, that strengthens my commitment to this. Uh, it, it encourages me and gives me hope for even more. And, and we've had so much success, even, with the, even within 10 years, that very little now seems to arise for which you don't have a good answer. The evolutionists aren't up to speed on what creationists think. They tend to recycle old arguments. And so someone says, well, how do you answer this? Oh, let's just, you know, exhibit, uh, it's, it's, it's illustration number 15 of, of a principle that goes back to Darwin, and we, we answered that 10 years ago, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I didn't get that much in, in way of concern or, or challenges yeah. during my education, being neck deep in the primary literature, reading the other side, which I do regularly, and, and dealing with their primary data raises new questions. But with the background I've had, with the successes I've already seen, and with the framework in place, many of these are fairly easy to solve. But some questions, like the one I'm working on right now, has taken five, ten years to solve. But now we're finally seeing the answer. It's taken a while, and it's, it's really exciting. What question is that that you're currently answering right now? So the big picture question is, can we see the history of civilization written in our DNA? Okay. If evolution's true... So if, if human history goes back 200,000 years, the first modern humans, goes back 6 million years to our common ancestor with a chimpanzee, you think about the history of civilization the last 3,000 years or so, that's just the tail end. And in a, in a long timeline, that's just a little blip that, that you'll hardly expect to see some sort of genetic signal. So for example, to use a, a really recent example of history, the, the, the sad history of the transatlantic slave trade, Here here's... 10, 12 million Africans forcibly moved against their will from Africa to the New World. They're forced to speak now English, Spanish, Indo-European languages, European languages essentially. Yet genetically, you can clearly see they're African in origin. And of course, history confirms this. The question though is, how different are they from modern Africans? Uh, so so a, a background piece of biological information that, that plays a huge role in this debate is something we call a DNA clock. So every generation, mistakes are added to our DNA sequence. Sperm and egg copy DNA. Uh, and when sperm and egg fuse during fertilization, life begins, new offspring. During the process within sperm and egg of copying DNA, mistakes happen. So if you were to compare my DNA to one of my four kids, you'd see differences that you don't see in me or my wife because we live in a fallen world. Mistakes happen. Yeah, doc Dr. John Sanford said there's about 100 to 300 um, mutations, or, or uh, he said point, I think he said, uh, what are they called? Um, point point mutations. Yeah, point mutations. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's, there, that's, there's, there's several different clocks that, that occur in our cells, depending on which genetic compartment you're looking at. That's one of them. And so what he's focused heavily on is this is damage that's accumulating, and that even the secular community is talking about the, the human species going towards extinction because there's so many mistakes being added every generation. Mm -hmm. That's one element of it. The other element of it is, well, now we've got a, a, a stopwatch in a sense. I mean, it's not that precise, but we hear something that every generation, there's a tick, another tick, another tick, or another hundred ticks, depending on how many mistakes occur. And so you can look back in time. So if we look in history, we know the transatlantic slave trade begins around 1500 A.D., uh, gets outlawed mid-1800s. I think it might be Brazil, 1866 perhaps. That's the last one. From that point forward, the Africans who are brought over to the New World really don't have much more contact with Africa. They, they're separated. And they've been separated for 150 years. Well, that's several generations for the African-American clock to tick in the New World, independent of Africa, and 150 years, several generations, for the African clocks tick within Africa. So African-Americans and Africans have been getting more different from one another the last 150 years, and you should be able to see that signal, how close or similar are Africans to African-Americans. And that's the sort of principle you can apply all over history. So Genghis Khan sweeps through Central Asia, gets to Eastern Europe, probably rape and pillage. Uh, so you're going to have some Asian lineages that show up in Europe right around the, the, correct, the time you might expect from uh, the Genghis Khan incursion, that sort of thing. 
these are the these are the sort of historical events we we should be able to see the number of differences between various people groups should match what we know from history and the evolutionists don't even think of looking into this because they say well that's, that's just the tail end of history dna mutates it changes really slowly we, we won't even think about looking at that because that's just that's far too recent an event for for our slow clocks to actually record in essence, they, they think our DNA clocks act like a sundial. You can't get that precise. It just mm. moves really slowly. It takes hundreds of thousands of years. No, human history is compressed into about 4,500 since the flood. And with only 4,500 years to work with, each of these events are a big chunk of it. You should be able to see these genetic differences. And so the research we're doing so far looks like, yes, we can actually see this signal, uh, which is really exciting in and of itself. But once you establish that principle to be true, you can go back and say, oh, wait a minute, we thought this was true from history. So one of the projects I'm working on right now is the uh, history of the Americas before Columbus, which is a topic I knew virtually nothing about growing up, hardly covered in the textbooks. Archaeology has undergone a massive transformation in the last 30 years in the mainstream scientific community. Well, now you add in genetics to it, and I, I think we've got evidence that there was a, a massive population replacement just, uh, just in the A.D. era, which is something no one's talking about. Basically, what I'm getting at, if this turns out to be true, is we have the chance now with genetics to rewrite history. Wow. And it's it just, this, this, these are directions I never anticipated going, but we, we go with it where the data leads. And yeah. it's been, been so successful, all these surprises have popped out, and you say, this is crazy, this is, <laughs> this is wild, but it's, it's so much fun. And this is really interesting, too. And this relates, um, we're coming up on a break here, but this relates to, uh, to mitochondrial Eve, is that correct? That's one area, and one, one of the areas we've neglected is the Y chromosome. That's the 10-year question, basically, that now we're finally beginning to solve. Okay, we have one more segment left. Stay with us. This is Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. Uh, he is an expert in cell and developmental biology. He has a degree from Harvard University, and he's a research biologist, author, and speaker with Answers in Genesis. You can find out more about him at AnswersInGenesis.org. You can also check out his book, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. Stay with us. We're going to be right back. Educate for Life helps you build your life on the rock. LG Equipment helps builders build on good soil. Luke Gibson's team at LG Equipment is your local source for grading, demolition, hauling, and more. Learn about their bulk water services from trucks to tankers to towers at rentwatertower.com. Get your questions answered. Call LG Equipment at 619-988-0924. Learn more at lgequipment.com. 619-988-0924. us today. This is Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. We're here in Southern California. K-Praise 106.1 uh, FM in North County and AM 1210 in San Diego. We also are on YouTube. We're on Periscope, Facebook, all the different social media outlets. You can check it out. We've got all kinds of uh, amazing interviews with people from all over the world, uh, including former Muslims, uh, former Buddhists, I've got some with uh, atheists like Lawrence Krauss, Dan Barker, um, all kinds of interesting um, perspectives to hear. But ultimately, what I'm trying to do is let people testify to the truth of God's word and how Jesus Christ can change a person's life. Ultimately, what we're all about is the fact that Jesus Christ has come, has died on the cross, has testified to the truth has paid the price for our sins, and if we will commit our lives to him and make him our Lord and Savior, that we can spend eternity with God, we can restore that broken relationship that happened all the way back in the garden. And so if you haven't made the decision to dedicate your life to Jesus Christ, today's the day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, so um, you can take some time just to pray to God uh, personally. There's not, nothing special about the prayer. It's really about your heart. And then make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. Tell him that you're sorry for your sins and that you want him to take over your life and to uh, come into your life and make him your Lord. And that's all it takes, the Bible says, for us to have a re restored relationship with God. So I hope you'll do that soon if you haven't done that. 
My guest today is Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, um, and he studies specifically creation and the evidence for creation, and he argues that Darwinism is past its time. It's not a good theory. We have enough evidence that it needs to be replaced. Uh, it's a bad theory. It doesn't solve the problems. And uh, Dr. Jensen, before we get into mitochondrial Eve um, and the Y chromosome, um, are you seeing, I, I've seen several uh, scientists or people that have been advocates um, of evolution who have kind of uh, changed their minds, um, and, and including, um, there was a very famous fellow at New York University, he was a professor of law, I believe, uh, wrote a book on this, how he thought Darwin, Darwinism was uh, not a good theory anymore either, and he wasn't even a Christian. Um, are you seeing more and more of people become skeptical of uh, Darwinian theory? I don't have a good sample size to say here's, here's a trajectory, and I haven't kept up with it as much because the few examples I've seen of people change have received such harsh blowback yeah. from the academic community for their views that I thought there's so much disincentive to ever announce your skepticism who's going to take the risk and come out publicly? Yeah. There's such a cultural push against it, I thought that it's just hopeless to try to even keep track. You praise the Lord when people do, but uh, the advice we still give people is basically, if you're in secular academia trying to get your PhD, keep your head down. You know, yeah. they're, they're going to do everything they can to stymie your career, even taking very dishonest steps. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous field in which to be a Christian, in a sense. And so, why is this why is a serpent harmless as doves is the rule that applies here in particular. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Did you ever have any pushback yourself at Harvard, what, what, debates with peers or with, with professors? Not as much while I was a student, and I think part of the reason is because I'm dealing with basic health questions, and evolution doesn't have much to do with it, and mm -hmm. I had a professor who was willing to accommodate and work with me, and as soon as... It, it changed, of course, as soon as I graduated and announced I was going to the Institute for Creation Research and gave a talk in Boston, and 100 atheists showed up and tried to make as much trouble as they could. They emailed people at Harvard and uh, emailed my immediate supervisor where I did my PhD, and, and the, the wind suddenly shifted as soon as that happens. And, and he read things like, well, he, 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 he must have gone through and lied. That's one option, I think. Mm. Or uh, he was paid to do this. They'll come up with all sorts of conspiracy theories, basically, to explain how I made it through. Never once, though, considering the possibility that, no, I actually know what I'm talking about, and I still reject evolution, and I still got a PhD. That's just, that's not allowed to be at, at part of the discussion. So uh, things shifted dramatically as soon as I made a, a career choice in the direction of creation science. Mm, yeah, yeah, I've heard uh, similar stories. So um, in the previous segment, we were talking about mitochondrial Eve, the Y chromosome. Um, can you uh, shed some light on that for us as far as the research is concerned? Yeah, so my initial research about 10 years ago started looking at mitochondrial DNA. This is DNA that's inherited through females. Males and females have it, but only moms pass it on for, for technical reasons. So my, three, my four children have my wife's mitochondrial DNA. I have my mother's. That DNA mutates as well. We now know it's about one mistake happens every five to ten generations. So to, to see a difference in my lineage, you'd have to go back to my great, 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 however many great grandmother to find a difference between my DNA and hers. But what's crazy is, on average, let's say in non-African people groups, because there, there tends to be a, a, a different mathematical difference between Africans and non-Africans. And non-Africans, like myself, there's only about uh, 20 mistakes total, 16 to 20 mistakes total that have happened since the beginning since the flood. And that's very explicable by one mistake every five to 10 generations. In other words, there is a clock, a maternal DNA clock that ticks at a rate that fits exactly the biblical timescale. What was a question then for the last 10 years is what about the male lineage? Males are males genetically, they're XY, females are XX. So in the beginning, you would have had Eve being XX, Adam being XY. At the flood, Noah's XY. His wife is XX. There's, a, there's really a, a single Y chromosome lineage at the flood because Shem, Ham, and Japheth get their Y chromosome from Noah. Anyway, 2009, that's right about when I started in creation science, there was one paper out in the mainstream literature talking about the rate at which the Y chromosome clock ticks, and it was about 10 times slower than I thought it would be and seemed to fit the evolutionary timescale. 
several years later, 2015, another publication comes out. They're looking at uh, several hundred pedigrees, uh, men of known relationship from Iceland, same result, seems to fit the evolutionary timescale. And looking at the history of mitochondrial DNA research, there have been about 15 to 20 studies on this clock and severe disagreement in the literature, obviously because it disagrees with evolution, so big uproar. And I figured, well, maybe just be a matter of time before the Y chromosome clock falls into line with the biblical model too. I didn't know. Well, it turns out the answer has been forthcoming. The, the, the earlier studies from 2009, 2015 that I, that I mentioned and didn't know what to do with were based on low quality data. What's happened since then, so there was a second paper that came out in 20, 2015 and then another one that came out in 2017. These were high quality data papers. And lo and behold, the rate at which the Y chromosome mutates is much faster when you actually get high quality data, and it fits exactly the young Earth timescale. The, the number of differences in the Y chromosome are about uh, 500 to 600-ish differences among men around the globe, a little bit more in Africans. Well, the, from these high quality data sets, the rate at which Y chromosome changes is two to three mistakes per generation. So my boys would be on average two to three Y chromosome DNA differences different than me. And I'd be two to three Y chromosome differences than my dad and on back you go. So you can explain all that within 4,500 years. What's, what you can't make up, and, and I want to preface this by saying I have tremendous respect for my mainstream evolutionary colleagues. They're smart people. They know how to do science, but they've been taught a single way of thinking on the origins issue. They know nothing what young earth creationists believe. They're taught evolution's a fact. You shouldn't even question it anymore. I've debated a guy who's written in public saying creation science is, is not even worth debating anymore. It should just be ridiculed. That's the attitude they're taught. And the pretzel twists they did to avoid the implications of their high-quality data are remarkable. One tried to essentially convert his high-quality results to low-quality data because, well, we know the low-quality data gave results that confirmed evolution, and so there must be something wrong with my high-quality data set. <laughs> it's oh, just man. crazy stuff like that where I thought, I know you guys are smart, and I know you can do this, and, and this is the last thing I'd expect you to do, but because they've been so trained to live in a bubble, essentially, uh, it, to them, I think, it really is the smart thing to do. It's, yeah. Well, They're we know trapped. evolution is true. It's, it's, not, it's not we're trying to, it's not a conspiracy. It's, well, I guess there must be something wrong. And, and that, that's just the rational thought to them, and it, but it just blows me away. Yeah. They're, they're, rather than following the evidence where it leads, they're, they're allowing their paradigm to get rid of good evidence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I was uh, I, I was reading about Einstein on this exact issue when he was talking about a steady-state universe, uh, which I thought was really interesting, too, where he said uh, he confessed to George Gamal that he had fudged his math in order to try to make his math fit his paradigm instead of allowing his math to ultimately lead to the conclusion that the universe had a beginning, which I thought was really interesting, too. Um, but I guess we all have to be careful about about that. What, what do you say to somebody who says that... Um, Christians tend to, you know, they, they look at the Bible, they take what the Bible says, and then they don't change their mind because even if the evidence is contradictory, they go with what the Bible says. How do you respond uh, to someone who says something like that? First thing I do is say, are you talking philosophically or scientifically? Because in my experience, in the sciences, on one side of the debate, the evolutionists are those who live in a bubble. They don't know what the other side says. They are unwilling to learn what the other side says. So there aren't that many people in my experience in the evolutionary camp who try to figure out what, what creationists say. The few who do, who do debates, again, there's one guy debated just last year who basically says, I'm not even going to try to read what you say, but I'm going to say you're ridiculous. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not rational. Whereas on the other side, I and my colleagues spend lots of time reading what Richard Dawkins says, Jerry Coyne says, I'm reading the primary literature, so I have the raw data at my fingertips. I can test, I can finish their sentences and say, yep, I know what you're going to say. Here's the evidence. Here's why you say it, which to me is the way any debater should try to approach an issue. You should know your opponent's position much better than he knows it or she knows it. And, and that's the, the ironic environment in which we live. Now, when it comes to the philosophical side, uh, do I believe the Bible is true? Yeah. And it's a settled question in my mind because that's that to me that's the point of philosophy is finding out what the answer is not just swinging like a door and its hinges and being blown about and and 
even if people try to deny it, that's the way everyone lives. There's, I, I don't think I've met a single person out there who's constantly wondering. You can't exist as a human being wondering if the sun's going to rise and if I take a step forward, is, is my existence going to collapse or just all these other crazy philosophical questions that people wonder about. Everyone settles on something. Yeah. And they have reasons for doing it. And you live consistent with whatever you believe. Mm. You may not be completely honest with yourself about what you do believe, but your actions have, have a way of revealing that. Yeah. And so to me, I have good reasons for believing the Bible is true. But even believing the Bible is true, there are so many possibilities when it comes to origins. I would argue that the creationists are the more open minded of the two views because they know what the other side says. They know what's the various ways of explaining things, the hypotheses to test. And I would also say, even within a creationist framework, the Bible gives details on the origin of species, that they arose in the last few thousand years, uh, that they come from specific kinds. There's a framework there, but there's lots that's unsaid. The Bible does not say whether the DNA clocks have been mutating at a constant rate or a variable rate. The mm -hmm. data currently seem to say, surprising to me, that a constant rate is a pretty good first approximation sort of the evolutionary assumption, but it takes you back only 6,000 years. So that's, that's perhaps one of the biggest takeaways for me, sort of a, one of the biggest empirical discoveries for me within the last 10 years is to say, people are always talking about this as absolute truth, and this is the way science is and the consensus. There's so much that's uncertain. Science is a very powerful way of knowing the world, but also a very clumsy way. There's, it, you, you can't prove anything with science. You can just disprove alternative ideas. And there's so many possibilities when it comes to origins, scientifically, that for anyone to say, I've arrived, I've found the answer is, is to me, an immediate red flag that they haven't looked into this issue too much. Abs so, absolutely. I, I don't think there's any scientific claim that could theoretically adjudicate the bigger questions of human meaning and existence and origins, mm. there's, there's, there's helpful tools to try to get us closer to the answers, but science is never going to take you there. It's just not, not designed to do that. And so uh, looking at how people actually practice science, it's the creationists to keep the open mind, the evolutionists, mm. I think, who are fairly closed-minded, perhaps yeah. by training and by choice. And on the bigger philosophical question, I, I'd say the Bible is the best supported view out there, and that's what I've put my faith in, and I, that's where I'm living my life. And someone else has also made a choice. They may not be honest with me or themselves about what that choice is, but they're living with some sort of view they've decided on. Yes, yeah, some sort of premise. Dr. Jensen, thank you so much for being on the program today. It was a big blessing to have you, and I really appreciate your work. Thank you very much. Absolutely. That's Dr. Nathaniel Jensen with AnswersInGenesis.org. You can check him out there. You can also pick up his book, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. It's uh, full of very valuable information and cutting-edge science and research. Um, he has a PhD in cell and developmental biology from Harvard University. So, uh, big blessing. Thanks for being with us today. I hope you enjoyed the program. I hope you enjoyed Brooks Gibbs, if you got to tune into that program also. And uh, we'll be back again next week and uh, have some other great interviews. In the meantime, if you want to check out my website, educateforlife.org, that's a great opportunity to get yourself informed and, and answer a lot of the questions that pop up on a regular basis among relatives and friends and peers and, and uh, whoever else uh, might be out there wondering what the truth is. God bless you. Did you miss part of today's program? Don't worry, we're committed to helping you get the info you need. Okay, that was dumb. But for real, visit EducateForLife.com for podcasts and video recordings of the show and to sign up for the School of Unshakable Faith. Leave us your comments, compliments, questions, or concerns at 800-243-9719. Or email